We are born free. And we will die free. The time in between, though, that's complicated. In that time, governments, institutions, and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life. These are real stories of real people overcoming the odds, persevering in justice, and unlocking their potential. Welcome to Finding Freedom. Here's your host, John Oderman. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Finding Freedom right here on the Lions of Liberty Network. And wow, <laughs> what a weekend um, back home in Pittsburgh after an awesome weekend up in New Hampshire at Porkfest. Uh, very happy to be home and uh, very much exhausted. So I'm going to get right to this interview for two reasons. One, because I want to get to the interview. And two, because I had a listener at Porkfest tell me that my intros are too long. So guess what? I accept criticism because I'm a reasonable person. So let's get right to the show. Okay, we're live here today with Jordan Burke. Um, Jordan has a, an interesting background. Uh, formerly, he was a police officer. And uh, since then, he's changed careers um, he's really traded in his badge and gun for a Bible and a rosary. He's he's followed his heart, and uh, he, he's focusing on bringing more attention to uh, to things that matter to him. He has a personal motto that is "Do the harder thing." Um, so we'll talk about that, and especially we'll probably spend most of the show today um, talking about a new book that is out, released by the Sophia Institute. It's called The Pope's Exorcist, 101 Questions About Father Gabriel Amorth. Um, this coincides with the release of the movie with uh, Russell Crowe, which I have not seen, um, called The Pope's Exorcist. So, Jordan, welcome to Finding Freedom. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Good to have you here. So let's let's start out with, uh, I think, sort of an obvious place to start. You You've had a a pretty interesting uh, career change and background. So you were a former police officer. So can you talk a little bit about how you got into and really what drove you, uh, motivated you to uh, become a police officer? Oh, yeah. So motivation, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I think uh, looking back, you know, I was really young and I was trying to get into the military and it was one of those instances where uh, even though all my paperwork was done and I was streamlined and they, you know, it was like, oh yeah, you're going to go to MEPS and then you're going to go to, ba we got it all figured out. It was one of those things where God was like, nope, that's not happening. And he just closed the doors. <laughs> so one thing after another, the doors got closed. I never ended up going into the military. And truthfully, this is uh, kind of comical, but I, I don't even remember applying for the police department. I have a feeling it was probably just like, yeah, we'll apply for police. We'll, we'll apply for fire. Um, I always had a sense of justice, uh, like right, rightly ordered justice. And I think I had a bit of rose colored glasses going in at the time. I would say that I didn't. And, and to an extent I didn't, but uh, I became pretty uh, disenfranchised isn't the word, but <laughs> I burnt out pretty quick. There was a lot of stuff that was going on. I worked in one of the top 10 most dangerous cities in the nation. I think they still make the top 10 list. At least they did at the time. Um, and I just kind of what, saw the writing on the walls. What, what city can, can you share that? Birmingham. What, what area? Yeah. Birmingham, Alabama. 
Okay. Yeah. And I worked in project housing. So that added a, a little bit of, of fun to the, to the scenario. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, so I went in prior to Ferguson happening and watching the world kind of shift and change. And then at the time, you know, this was my formative years. And so I was still developing my personal worldview and seeing what was going on both politically and how it affected uh, policing as a whole and the people that we were supposed to be serving interactions with people and then kind of connecting the dots on a, a lot of different things and then seeing Ferguson happen and how, how the world responded uh, and all the things that were happening after that. I kind of read the writing on the walls and I, I just discerned uh, if you can call it discerning because I was a wreck at that time. But uh, I basically just discerned this isn't the life for me. You know, I have a little girl on the way and I'm not, I'm not going to have my daughter grow up without a father who was uh, killed potentially for something that he didn't necessarily believe in. So I know that there's a lot there <laughs> and I yeah. don't want people thinking, you know, I'm, I'm uh, I don't know. There's a lot there, but it, it's, it was a, it was an interesting experience. And so, you know, after that, I'd, Oh, go ahead. You have a question. No, I, I was just going to say, yeah, there is a lot there. I mean, I've, I mean, yeah. I've had on, I've interviewed people who've come from, a, at least from a policing standpoint, left the police force for, I, I think, you know, probably pretty similar um, reasons that, that you did. It's just, you know, joining with good intentions, thinking that you're, that you're helping. And then once you're in the system and you understand it's, it's very different uh, once you get into it. So I think my audience definitely um, can, can really relate to, to that aspect of your story. So anyway, continue. That's, that's exactly it. I, it was the, with the intention to actually serve people and then being put into a position where, you know, for, I was in there for a little over six years, I think is what it ended up being because people thought I was crazy. Oh, in a few more years, you'll, you'll have, um, your pension and all these other things. I was like, I can't, I can't do this. <laughs> you know. So, uh, as you said, you know, the system is, is corrupt in a lot of ways and, uh, I just couldn't be a part of it any longer. And, and, you know, and it was, I will say I did make a pretty solid effort to try to change it. I was a field training officer when I left, which meant that, um, anyone who graduated the academy would come to my car and I'd give them practical application. Okay, this is what you learned in your textbooks, in your classes. This is how it's actually applied. Safety and and I, I made a serious effort to try to tell people, you know, you need to understand that every action that you take has repercussion. And, mm-hmm. you know, you may think you're doing something that's moral because it's a law, but that doesn't mean that it's moral or ethical. And you can destroy somebody's life if you're not, mm-hmm. if you, if you are not thinking for yourself, you can destroy somebody's life. So, um, after, uh, after trying to change the system as much as I could and, and, and getting uh, kind of by my perception blacklisted on a lot of different things, I was like, all right, I'm, I'm done. And I see where this is going. And of course, uh, we know how the state of policing today, it was pretty much, uh, worse than what I could have predicted, but along the same lines of what I predicted. And I was like, I, I gotta, I gotta do something else. So, yeah, I, a little background on me. I, I used to host a podcast called felony Friday, which mm. focused almost entirely on the criminal justice system. And I talked to a lot of individuals who, you know, really had their lives ruined or a mm. family member had their lives ruined, um, and collateral damage, you know, Im- impacted yeah. them through, um, the broken system. So definitely understand wh- where you're coming from there. So to, to pivot here, you leave the police force after about six years, you, you kind of mentioned before that, that your life was a wreck. Um, 
you know, eventually you, you end up turning to the church. Was this sort of like a, what was the time frame there? How quickly did, did that occur? Time. So you're asking someone who's severely chronologically challenged. Um, I am too. So I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. But it was uh, it, so I, I converted to Catholicism in high school, but it was very much an intellectual pursuit. Um, my dad, mm. who had converted, and he was talking to me about it, and I thought, oh, that makes sense. Apostolic succession makes sense. I like these things. Um, but it was never something that I made my own. So I was Catholic at the time that I was a police officer, but I, I throw up the the uh, the air quotes because I certainly wasn't living it. And, uh, I, and because of what I experienced in the police force, uh, both not, not even really in terms of what I dealt with day to day, which does take its toll, um, but just trying to deal with the morality and ethical issues that I was coming against day to day, um, that combined with everything else was, was just too heavy. So that, and then my, as I mentioned, my personal life was wrecked. All that combination was like a perfect storm. Um, so I had kind of a, a, a St. Paul moment, so to speak. So I, I left the police force. I think I was out for about a year and I was installing granite countertops because I was just taking whatever job I can get. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, and I got brought into the Avila Institute, which my dad founded. Uh, and because of my video editing background and things like that, they needed that. And I thought, well, this is probably better than hauling, you know, hundreds of pounds of granite on, on these jobs. Don't mind the workout, but you know, uh, so, uh, I kind of, I kind of shifted and in that it, it really pushed me in a lot of different ways because it was a completely different environment. And so a lot of things came to head. So the pushing on, on my faith as well as my personal life was really uh, had been damaged in the process of my prior career and then had never really recovered and continued to get worse. So ended up um, divorced, unfortunately. And it was like this, the only thing I can equate it to is a St. Paul moment because I was completely, I was knocked off my horse. I was blind. And uh, I was by the grace of God rescued in a lot of different ways. And, um, it was, it was, gosh, I would say maybe another year, which is totally uncommon. Uh, and I don't want people hearing that and thinking like, Oh, okay. There, you know, there's always hope. Right. But it, I, mm-hmm. I definitely know that my situation is very uncommon. It's not because I'm special. I think it's just that I was so broken <laughs> that when you're that empty, you have a lot of room for grace by the grace of God. So I don't know if that answers the question, but yeah, it was kind of a, a chaotic time. No, that I think that's that's sort sort of common um, in a way for it to, for it to happen that way, and uh, I'm I'm not Catholic, but I am a Christian, and sure. um, I, I have had on you know a few people in the past to talk about um, really you know this battle between good and evil and exorcism, and especially I think in in these times that we're in today that it almost you can almost feel it in the world that that's something. You know, something is shifting um, in, in this, this spiritual battle. It's, it's almost bubbling up uh, to the surface. So that's, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on, because I think a lot of these things, you know, I think in the past, at least maybe it was just my perception as a younger person, but it was, it was just stuff that you read about or heard about. But I think now it's sort of more applicable, at least to me, to uh, the things that no, are going on in this world. No, so I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's start out with uh, who this individual is, um, Father um, Father Gabriel 
Amorth. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so he's referred to as, as the Pope's exorcist. So tell us a little bit about, uh, about who he is. Yeah, he's a fascinating character. He was a priest. Uh, he was a priest. F- well, uh, I should back up. So I, I love his story for a lot of different reasons because it, it kind of shows that uh, much kind of like my story, I think maybe partially be maybe why I'm interested in it, but it shows that God pulls people from wherever he wants to pull them from. And so he felt a call to the priesthood, when, I believe when he was about 13 years old, but he didn't pursue it. So he ended up fighting with the resistance in World War II and then later uh, ended up engaged in politics to the point where he helped the Italian prime minister write their constitution at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't become a priest until he was in his thirties, uh, but he didn't become an exorcist until he was in his sixties. Wow. Right. <laughs> right. And then he died in 2016, if memory serves. So from 60 something to 90 something, he performed all these different exorcisms. And during that time specifically is when he kind of garnered this fame, not by choice, but because uh, the rate of the amount of exorcisms that he was doing and what he was learning and the impact that it had on his faith, he had this uh, charism, so to speak, of sharing this information. And he wanted people to know. He wanted people to know, hey, this is what I'm seeing. This is what we're dealing with. This is the reality. This is what the gospels say, and it's still being lived out today, and you need to be aware of it. And th- you know, And from the point of an exorcist who's dealing with it, uh, really on the front lines, face to face, in a in a different way. You and I, and those who are listening, deal with it as well, obviously. But in in a different way, in particular, um, it kind of gives us these guidelines. So yeah, so Pope's exorcist comes uh, primarily because he was uh, the exorcist for the Vatican for a period of time. Mm-hmm. And so you talked to, you talked a little bit about so the time frame from from sixty to to ninety years old, which yeah. you know is not really what you picture someone, you know, doing right. that, that intense type of work, you know, doing these exorcisms, right. but he did it, it, some astounding number. What's, what's the number that, that he did? Yeah. So time? by his estimate, by his estimation, he performed upwards of 60,000 exorcisms and, and to put that in context, cause that's a wild number on its own, but to put that in context or context, um, it's not 60,000 individual exorcisms. It, it could be seeing one person upwards. I believe, I think he said mm-hmm. the, the most serious cases may take like 50 sessions or something like that. Um, so it could be multiple sessions with one person, but regardless, like you said, from, from 60 something to 90 something, 60,000 sessions is mind boggling mm-hmm. <laughs> in a lot of ways. So, yeah. So when you want to talk about someone who has the experience, you know, he's, he's the guy. I've, I've heard that before in my, in my past conversations talking about exorcisms where it can take, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 sessions, which is very surprising to me. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about maybe why, why that is in, in some cases? Yeah. So in, when, when, when you study angelology and demonology, one of the thing, the distinctive things is we understand in, in the gospels that there's a choir of angels, right? So there's particular levels of angels. When uh, demons fall, when angels fall and become demons, what we know as demons are just fallen angels. Uh, they maintain or they hold that same level that they had uh, in heaven. It's just inverse in a way. Mm-hmm. So if someone was a part of, you know, their seven choirs, they're part of the fifth choir. When now as their demon, they're they have that same fifth choir. Um, 
I, I hesitate to say skill or ability. It's kind of difficult to explain because it's not, it's not necessarily skill or ability, but that level that comes with it of, of mm. uh, maybe power might be a better way to explain. Is it like a, like a high hierarchy of. Yes. Yeah. Right. So the yeah. demons have their own hierarchy and it's generally an inverse of whatever they had um, in heaven prior, you know, prior to the fall. So I only mentioned that to mention that there are particular demons that have, um, let's just say, bigger claws than others. And when we're talking about exorcism, it's an act of removing the claw, so to speak, or removing the chain from the person who is being oppressed or in the case of exorcism, possessed. Mm-hmm. Um, oppression, you know, is one level, but possession would actually determine a full right exorcism. And so, we're, so there's all these variables from the various powers of the demons that they hold um, to even what God permits, because we understand that uh, everything is either willed or permitted by God, and which sounds crazy to some people. Why would God permit that someone be possessed? While there's things as suffering souls, you know, so there are those people who uh, are permitted to experience some sort of what we would call an injustice for the sake of a greater good because they can handle that injustice and because they have the ability to, uh, to um, maintain and that suffering that that suffering produces good graces for, you know, some other grander thing. So obviously this is like a fire hose of like random theology, right? <laughs> but, but the basic, uh, the basic understanding is that, you know, we can't just we can't just assume that someone can go into an exorcism and bam they're done. Sometimes that is the case, and that's fantastic, and that would be great. That'd be perfect if every case was like that. <laughs> Unfortunately, that just doesn't seem to be the way that it is. And mm-hmm. and the other variables are even maybe the the demon we know certain demons will hide behind certain things. Of course, they lie, and so it may take multiple sessions just to determine how that demon, whatever the doorway was for it to enter. And once that doorway is found, then they can help remove the demon by closing that doorway. So again, I, I know that I've given you like a scattering of information, but that's kind of in the context of the conversation. There's a lot going on. No, that's that's good because I think there's I think there's a lot of directions to go there. But I'll, I'll, sure. I'll start with the last thing you said. They're talking about a doorway to enter. So right when you talk about a doorway to enter, are you talking about like how the individual? came to be in touch with that demon like for example using something like a ouija board or is it sure my way off no no no. you're 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 dead on so there's there's a couple different doorways um so father mcmanus who was involved with writing the new rite of exorcism has talked about several of the doorways and they can be anything from what you mentioned which was uh using a ouija board and i think it's important to mention too for people that not every ouija board use results in possession um, however, it's still not smart to play with fire, but there are mm-hmm. cases where someone has used it and become possessed, right? So there's both of those realities exist. And then you have, um, wow, my mind just totally went blank. I apologize. Talking about so, door- oh, doorways. doorways. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been a day. We've had tornado warnings and watches. It's, it's been a day. What, what so, part of the country are you, are, are you in? Alabama. Okay. That's yeah, right. Montgomery, that's lower, lower uh, Montgomery, Alabama. We got hit pretty hard earlier today. So we've been running around. Um, so with the doorways though, you also have things like wounds and that's one that a lot of people aren't aware of. And it's not so much that you are wounded emotionally or physically by someone and it's suddenly you're possessed. It's not how it works at all. It's more of a, as father McManus explains, I equal my wound. 
right? So someone who is not seeking healing, someone who is uh, taking, we're better known as like the victim mentality, right? That can become a doorway. Well, why is that? Well, it's contrary to what God created you to be. God wants you to heal and be whole. And if you're living in in your, you know, to, to use a phrase, your spiritual diaper, right? If you're just sitting there and you you want to come, you want to be a victim and I'm not, you know, not uh, being uncharitable towards those people, but that is kind of the reality of what's going on. If you don't want to snap out of it, that can be a doorway as well. So from wounds to Ouija boards to people actually seeking out to make contracts with demons, um, all these different ways can be particular doorways. And the most stunning one I think that I've read so far in all, all my study on this topic, he actually mentions in this book, is that at his time, the most common way, again, at his time, I don't know if this holds true today, but when at, at the time he was asked this question, they said, well, what's the most common way for people to be possessed? He said, well, in my experience, it's people being cursed. And that's a whole nother discussion. Mm. <laughs> right? It's like, well, hold on, wait a minute. So you're telling me that someone who did not seek out demons, who is not particularly wounded, who is not, you know, playing with the Ouija boards can be possessed. And his answer was yes. You know, there is this reality that there, the demons can or are permitted to act in particular ways. And whether or not we can see the means of what's going to happen, if it is permitted, well, and we may not need to get into all of that, but uh, that's that's one of the most common ways that he saw. So anyway, I don't want to ramble too much. So No, it's, it's what a podcast is for. It's about okay, going good, down good. A different, different rabbit holes. Um, so I did want to circle back to one thing you mentioned sure. there. You talked about contracts with demons, and I want to make sure I understand what's meant by this. Um, what would an example of that be like, you know, we always hear about, you know, music artists who are, you know, worshiping the devil or movie stars who are worshiping the devil in exchange for um, maybe not worshiping. Maybe they've just you know made a deal with the devil um, in some certain way in order to advance their career. W- would that be an example of a, a contract with, with a demon? That's exactly right. So yeah, that's exactly right. The, that's the most common thing that we hear about. I think, uh, I think, so don't sue me, uh, Paul McCartney, I believe it was, there's a famous story about him making a contract with the demon. And, uh, he was told in such and such amount of years, you're going to die. And sure enough, when those, that time came, he did die. Um, well, so Paul I McCartney's still alive. So it would be, okay. Uh, so it wasn't Paul McCartney then. Yeah. My, it would, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. I can't remember who it was. I'd have to look it up. I apologize. Mm-hmm. I should have been more prepared for that one. But that's one of the examples. Another example is what you see a, a lot on the, let's say, TikTok, you mm-hmm. know, is big right now. You'll have these kids who want to or who are, who are getting involved with uh, what they believe is witchcraft and these sorts of things. And so they want to access some power that they perceive that someone is selling to them. And so they seek to make an agreement or contract with some entity in order to receive that power. Um, so that's just, not, that's not, would be another example of people making contracts. Um, so c- can you talk a little bit about, talked about the, the number of exorcisms that, uh, you know, Father, Father Gabriel Morth did and really, you know, the, the many times repeated with the same individual. So what's, what's that process? And we don't have to get too into detail, but, but you, you can, if, if it makes sense to like, what's, what's an example of, of the process or the tools being used or, you know, 
kind of kind of where where these meetings would typically take place. And I know that's a lot of different questions, but no, 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 it's fine. So the the tools one is the easiest. We can get we can knock that one out pretty quick. So the tools are just various sacramentals. So mm-hmm. he'd always have his purple priestly stole, which is a sign of the priesthood, um, blessed or exercised water, exercised salt, a crucifix. These are kind of the common things that he carries. So these are uh, in the Catholic Church. These are considered sacramentals, and that they uh, help with a particular sacramental grace. Um, another one that you'll hear commonly, Father Carlos Martins talks about this quite fre- frequently, is relics. So in the Catholic Church, for those who are unaware, there we have relics of saints, who the church considers saints. And what's fascinating is to hear about cases where, you know, you'll come up against a particular demon, and let's just say that they are in charge of, or their specialty is probably a better way to say it, is impurity. Well, maybe that there, maybe there's a saint that specialty is chastity. And so having the relic of that saint has proven to be effective in many different cases mm-hmm. uh, and helping, helping, well, number one, annoy the demon, but, but in some cases having them just go entirely. So all these different things in conjunction, right? So those are kind of the tools. In terms of the place, it's funny because in the book, he had written that he had to move around a couple of different times because he'd go to a place and the place in which he was holding the exorcisms, whoever you know rented the space or whoever was around him complained because there are times where people will get really loud, they'll scream. And he jokes about it because he was, he was a very humorous man, but he said, you know, we always had to have a place that was far from the street so people didn't call the cops. So they didn't mm-hmm. think anyone was being murdered. <laughs> so, so that's an aspect of it. Later on, so, so uh, tools in place and then process the church has a really in-depth process from someone who believes that they're possessed to getting them to an exorcist. And that's for a couple of different reasons. Uh, Unfortunately, there are those who just pretend that they're possessed for the sake of whatever reason they want to. It doesn't really make any sense. Uh, They could legitimately be mentally ill, but there are stories of those who just wanted attention from somebody else. And so they're pretending to be possessed in order to get that attention. So it's important to um, determine whether or not the case is legitimate. And so to do that, you know, let's say someone who's listening says, well, I think I'm possessed. You'd contact your local diocese. They would have you fill out this information. You generally go see uh, a therapist. And And that's also because if the person is experiencing some sort of legitimate mental illness, then the church doesn't want to say, well, you're not possessed, so we can't help you. It's okay. You're experiencing something. We don't think it's possession. It seems like a a lot like it's this, you know, whatever this Mm -hmm. mental illness is, let's address this and we'll help you address this and get you to see who you need to see and whatever treatment you need. And then if things are continuing, then we can go to the next step. But there are those who go to through that process and almost immediately the therapist is like, I don't understand what's going on here. This doesn't make any, any sense. I can't, you know, logistically figure out this doesn't fit in the DSM or whatever the case may be. Uh, I think that they need to go see the, the priest. And even then <laughs> the exorcist is going to have some tests to determine whether or not the person is actually possessed because there are people who have made it through that entire process who have mm-hmm. fooled multiple people um, who are still not possessed. So, and that's a, that's an interesting topic too, that we can talk about at some point, but, um, yeah, it's kind of the, the process. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's hard. It's hard. So, I mean, part of like when, when I think of exorcism, of course it goes to 
you know, what, what you see in the movies and, and things like that. And I'm sure, I'm sure there probably are some exorcisms that, that are close to that. Um, but I'm kind of assuming that there's some that are very, very different. And, oh, yeah. you know, I, I know that, you know, as human beings, we, we, we are tempted every day. And, you know, there's, there's the battle with the flesh. Um, not every encounter with that is, you know, is, is a demon. But are, are there, you know, examples of someone being, um, you know, uh, someone need, in need of an exorcism who really, you know, if you saw them on the street, you saw them interacting, they would look, everything would seem, you know, perfectly normal. Sure. Yeah. Well, so to, to address your first question, question, mm-hmm. uh, father Morthen, another one of his books wrote that, Hey, you need to understand that not all of these are, are these crazy things where people are levitating and vomiting objects that they couldn't have eaten. He said, the majority of them are just like a doctor or dentist visit. It's like, come in, we're going to do the prayers. You might twitch a little bit, you know, to, with a little bit of humor, but you might twitch a little bit, but then you're, you're on your way. Um, not all of them are, are these kind of grandiose things. But to your second question of can someone just kind of um, appear totally normal, that is possible. So um, while this this book I'm about to mention was kind of uh, embellished a bit, the stories are true. Uh, So I don't know if you're familiar with Hostage to the Devil, Malachi Martin. No, no. Okay, so it's I wouldn't recommend it um, only because there are – You would not recommend it. I would not. It's it's a great book, but I'll say this. You know, as a cop, I saw some of the most horrific things that you could potentially mm-hmm. imagine and experience some horrific things. And and th- and I have a very strong uh, gut. <laughs> and in this book, Hostage to the Devil, there's a couple stories in there that are things that I, I, I left and I was like, wow, I kind of wish I didn't read that. So <laughs> that's why I don't necessarily recommend it. It's very, very dark. But one of the stories in there is about a priest who became possessed. And what's fascinating is because it it shows that everyone can be a target. Everyone can be a victim for one, but then also that somebody who is in that position of authority, so to speak, can be possessed and still execute their um, tasks as a priest. This priest would still do mass um, and he wouldn't be affected. Right. And so, and that's kind of more of an extreme case because there's levels of oppression within the possession that allow for someone to kind of exhibit or not exhibit the kind of demonic behavior. And there's some things that they can't avoid, but in the case of the priest, this is why I bring this up is that he could appear completely normal uh, and people wouldn't really have an idea of what was going on. That being said though, and this goes back to what you mentioned earlier about how kind of the darkness is becoming more real and, Mm -hmm. and we're feeling in the world, all these different things going on. I firmly believe that it seems with, with all these different cases that I've studied at some point, the enemy overplays his hand every time. And I think it comes down to pride and I think it's just pushing and overplaying his hand because eventually something will come to the surface that reveals maybe not that they're possessed, but that something weird is going on. Um, which is what happened with this priest in the book. Uh, he ended up leaving the church, which uh, in forming like some sort of cultish type thing, which is a pretty obvious sign <laughs> at that point. But, but uh, f- for everyone else, you know, uh, it's, it, it could be, well, let me put it this way. And you, you touched on this as well. The daily temptations of the flesh, the daily temptations mm-hmm. that we experience in the normative Christian life, right? The way that the enemy works is not just, it's not a, I'm going to go snatch that person. I'm going to go possess them. Mm 
-hmm. It is a progression. It is a, I love, I don't know if you've seen nefarious, but it was brilliantly done. And he says something so perfect. He says not or enough yeses and not enough nos is exactly what we need. So -hmm. these little things, these little things of, okay, I'm not going to deny myself or I'm going to go indulge in this, or I'm going to commit this sin. And maybe from stealing a toy to, you know, stealing something else to progressively getting worse, worse and worse in that, in those yeses, you're giving consent to evil. That's what sin is, you know, Mm. regardless of religious affiliation, we all understand that's what sin is, right? So giving yes to that, giving consent to that evil is giving more power to that demon over you. And so eventually you can go down a path where, you know, you, you can either become fully possessed or you just fall away enough and you're spiraling enough that it serves their purposes as well because you're away from God and you're doing what your flesh desires versus what is actually virtuous. You know, that, that's an interesting, interesting thing to think about, especially, you know, going back to what we're seeing in the world today. And I forget the name of the company, but a couple of years ago, there was a mainstream, um, uh, you know, company that sold, I don't know, merchandise, pur- purses, things like that for, for women. And, you know, they had some, very evil satanic elements in a photo shoot that was kind of out there mm. in plain view. Then you think of like what happened recently with target um, with their yep. pride displays, but within those pride displays was um, merchandise that was being sold by a, you know, out um, Satanist, um, someone who yep. was, you know, wor- worshiping Satan. So by putting that out in place, and I hadn't thought about this. So you said that, and if people know that, okay, I'm still going to buy that or, or, or shop there or, um, you know, buy through this website that is openly telling me it's satanic, then they then would be given consent, right? Yeah, in a way. I don't, I don't know if the levels of culpability in terms of shopping, <laughs> but uh, it's definitely something to consider yeah. because we're, you know, it, in, in a way you can consider that a sin of omission. It's like you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You know, mm-hmm. for, for me, when I saw that stuff uh, go on with Target, I, I told my girlfriend, I was like, hey, we're not, stop, <laughs> no, don't, we're not giving yeah. them any more money. Because in a way, in my, my moral, my conscience, I would, I feel as if I would be culpable giving them money to further that, to continue. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really becoming more and more evident. Uh, you know, we even going to Barnes, we was just at Barnes and Noble the other day and uh, seeing all the tarot cards and all the Ouija boards and all the spell books and all these other different things in the self-help section. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, are you kidding me? And, and of course it's always targeting kids. It's always targeting young adults and, and things of that nature. But yeah, it's becoming more and more obvious. And uh, we have to be very careful about where we spend our time and our money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And I, I guess I'm just noticing stuff like that more because you become aware of it. But I was listening to an episode of Joe Rogan um, mm-hmm. a, a week or so ago. And Joe Rogan, obviously, he, he's not a Christian. He's, you know, he's very open about that. I'm not sure where he falls, if he's agnostic or atheist. But, yeah. um, you know, he's talked about his, you know, taking DMT and coming in contact with, um, you know, beans and um, that whole that whole thing. So, you would think he would understand, you know, there's, there's some sort of other world there that is right. you know, some, some, some aspect of, of evil. And if there's evil, there, there's gotta be, you know, there's gotta be good, but I don't know if he's thought it through that much, but he was talking about his, his daughter. And I don't really understand what this, 
thing is that she was using, but some sort of device used to detect. Um, oh, I heard those too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I was yeah. like, holy, cause he was, he was talking about his comedy club. He's like, Oh, I th-. he's yeah. like, I-, I can feel like an aura in the comedy club when I'm there. Like it's supposed to be there. And he's like, and my daughter has this thing and she says it's haunted. And I'm just like thinking, what the heck are you doing? Letting right. your 12 year old daughter play around with like this other world. But I guess most people would hear that from me and think, what are you talking about this? That's insane. But that, that's like where, where my mind goes right away. Well, it's funny. You're not the only one. Cause I thought the same thing. I, I remember that episode. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, Oh dude, <laughs> like you, can't, you can't do that. I, I, uh, I spoke about this on another show. I don't remember when, but my, I never wanted to get into this topic of, of study. I never, I had no mm-hmm. interest in it because when I was younger, I was fascinated with the ghost hunter shows and all those other different things. And I went deep. And unfortunately, what it resulted in is I believe it opened some sort of a doorway because mm-hmm. I was I had no negative experiences that I can recall until I was really diving deep into these things. And then next thing I know, and I, there are plenty of people out here who are going to say, well, it's probably just a psychological, you know, you just tricked yourself psychologically. I, I don't believe that's the case um, because I never had a fear of anything that I was looking at, you know, with the ghost hunter. I never had a fear. It was a fascination, right? Um, but to the point where, you know, we were in this house and hearing footsteps all over the place, so loud and clear that I thought someone was there, even when I was the only one there, um, other different things like that, that made, that had no, I'm the most skeptical person you're going to meet. Right. So I I caveat that with this, I'm going to check everything. (laughs) There's no reasonable experience or uh, explanation for why I experienced the things that I experienced. And because of that, for, for whatever reason, probably the grace of God, I made the connection. Oh dude, you're, you're looking into this stuff. Like what if this is, what if you're opening a doorway to something? And so I cut it off and, and it all ceased. I never had any issues after that. So I was like, I want nothing to do with it. So coming into this later, I was, I was even more cautious when it became evident that this was what I was supposed to be um, working in and studying and, and, and uh, producing content on. Um, And yeah, so I, I take all this very seriously, and that and that is one thing. You know, these ghost hunter shows. And this is a, a side. I'm, I'm going on a rabbit trail here, so I apologize. But um, you know, the church, our, the Catholic Church, even has a stance on that, which is, you know, most of it is probably fake. A lot of it is evidently fake, um, but there are such things as we we count the souls in purgatory. And what if this is you know a soul in purgatory who's asking for help? or, you know, whatever the case may be and going to these haunted houses or doing these other different goofy things is more mocking these souls potentially who are, who are in need of help rather than actually helping, helping them. So Mm -hmm. I don't know that again, that's another rabbit trail to go down, but um, yeah. Yeah. It's, well, it's either that or, or it's demons, right? I mean, right, right. Exactly. Or it's (laughs) nothing. And someone's, you know, ma- making a fool of you. So right, any right, of the exactly. options necessarily aren't, aren't good. Um, right. But so I, I did want to ask, so I have two more questions. One about uh, a fa- father Morth, and then the one I want to come back to come back to you. So um, father Morth had, had some views about the importance of exorcism within the Catholic church. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, why he felt exorcisms were so important. 
Yeah, you know, reading all of his, all of his text, it's he never outright says it, but it becomes really evident when you take it all um, as a whole that he had a very serious heart for service. He had a very serious desire to help set people free. He saw people hurting. Uh, he saw people suffering because we have to remember that at, at at the core of what's going on when someone goes into an exorcism, they are suffering. They're suffering. You know, they could mm-hmm. be they could be vitriolic. They could be spitting on you. But the reality is, is that they are suffering. And he saw that and, and he had a real heart for that. So much so that, you know, he even uh, created the IAE, which is the um, International Association for Exorcists, to help kind of spread this information. Uh, and that was a part of what he did within the church. Now, he had some interesting takes on the new rite of exorcism. Um, but a lot of it, again, if you take it in context with all of his writings, it was a lot about the red tape. So he writes about how, well, the Orthodox, you can just go ring a bell and you're going to get an exorcist. Now, I don't know the efficacy of, of what, of that experience. I don't know what that looks like. Um, and, and to put it, to slide the scale to the other side, uh, it's pretty well known. So Father Ripperger is one of the most well-known exorcists right now. He wrote a book called Dominion. And in that book, when he's talking about the different levels of demons and things like that, he said, um, there is a reality that there are some Protestants out there who have been able to free people from demons, not through their own merit, because even with the exorcist, it's never by their own merits, only through Jesus. But in particular, because mm-hmm. these lower level demons, they they have no choice. It says in scripture, every knee shall bow, right? So by the very power of the name of Jesus, they, these people are set free. So it shows us there's this reality of regardless of the religious affiliation, um, their power of Jesus is it's there. So yeah. that's why I can't say the efficacy of, you know, what the Orthodox does or what they do, but he knew within what he had within, you know, the sacramentals that are given by the church and experiencing all these different things that it was very important. And he wanted to help as many people as he could. And then for goodness sakes, I mean, 60,000, I don't, he never gave, I think he said, I could never count the individual cases, but for the sessions, you got to imagine 60,000 is, tens of thousands of people probably that he helped, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. That's a, that's a, a lot of hours to, uh, to put yeah. into to 30 years of doing it. Pretty, pretty remarkable. Yeah. Um, so one more question for you. So I talked about in the intro that your personal motto is do the harder thing. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So when, you know, I mentioned my life was a wreck and at that time, I, uh, I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you're having an argument with somebody in your head that never happened, you know, like, or that mm-hmm. there may never happen. It's like a preemptive argument. Oh, yeah. Just really oh, yeah. Just, yeah. So I was, I was in the midst of my divorce and I was, a, I was just wrecked because I was doing everything I could to try to save the marriage and all these other different things. And so I'm having this argument in my head and in the midst of the argument, I, I said to this person, you need to just do the harder thing. And for whatever reason, it like snapped me out of this like mm. hyper emotional um, experience. I was like, what does that even mean? And so I started, it, it just stuck with me. It was, it was so, you know, the story doesn't really give a, a, as, as much details as it should <laughs> to, to explain how deeply it affected me yeah. because I took it every single day to do, okay, what is the more difficult thing that I can do? Should, okay. Should I run the dishwasher or should I just hand wash the dishes? I used to like to go get lost in the woods just to like think and pray. And anytime there was an opportunity to take a more difficult path, I would take that more difficult path. Mm. So it became this, 
it became this method of self-denial. So like this type of mortification in a way, but to really subjugate my flesh, so to speak, to the intellect and to the will. And then as I went on, it became a really good kind of test to figure out how I should handle certain situations. And theologically speaking, or just speaking as a, in the normative Christian life, what's more difficult to, to be mad at somebody who has harmed you or to forgive them? Hmm. Well, you need to do the harder thing. You need to forgive them. Right. So it, it became this like all encompassing kind of uh, method of living my life. And I turned that into a, a ministry because at the time, one of my big issues was struggling with pornography. And I had met with some of the greatest minds, I believe anyway, of uh, therapists in that area. And so I was able to take all the knowledge that they gave me to help me break free and condense it and apply different aspects of the church uh, to mm-hmm. really help other guys break free. Um, so that carried on for some years. I called it do the harder thing, of course. And then, um, after, after, after a couple years, it was really evident that God was like, all right, cool. You did what I wanted you to do there. Awesome. Good job. Now I need you to do something else. And I'll, and <laughs> I'll tell you, I would, I, I still have my Jonah moments and that was a big one. It's <laughs> like, I, I want nothing to do with yeah. what you're asking me to do, but, uh, I'm really, I'm, I'm thankful to be where I'm at now. And, and it is very edifying to have these conversations. So I don't know if that answers the question, but that's the, you know. Uh, it, it definitely does. And it kind of, it kind of relates to something that, you know, I've been thinking on you know, more recently and I've, you know, I've just, I've just been hearing it more, I think where, you know, l- life is suffering, right? We're, we're going to right. suffer. Um, so you can either choose how you suffer, which really that's most of the time, I think it's going to be doing the harder thing, maybe in that moment. Right. But right. over time it's, it's going to make your, likely will we'll make your life better and we'll, you'll have less suffering from it. So I think that's great. That's a great motto to, to do the harder yeah. thing. And well, and, and uh, you know, you look at scripture to your point, if we look at scripture, Jesus is very clear. He who does not pick up his cross and follow after me cannot be my disciple. It's mm-hmm. like, well, there ain't nothing easy about carrying the cross. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. So that's, yeah. that's it. It's doing the harder thing. Well, that's, that's awesome, Jordan. And this has been a, a great show, but we are out of time. So lastly, if I could ask you just to give your plugs here for, for the book um, and also for you know anything personally that you want to point people towards. Sure. So the book is Pope's Exorcist, 101 Questions About Father Gabriel Morth. Sophia Institute Press is where you can find that. Uh, work for spiritualdirection.com, avalinstitute.org. You can find all of my work and content uh, on Instagram because – it's the most fruitful of all the evil social media platforms, unfortunately. Uh, and that's do the underscore harder thing. You can find me there. And um, I think that's a bit, that's, that should be it. All right, Jordan. Thanks for coming on Finding awesome. Freedom. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Jordan Burke. I'm talking about, you know, some pretty, Pretty, pretty intense stuff. Um, you know, I, I don't know where, obviously, every listener lies on what they believe in. I know many of you um, are not Christians, but maybe you do believe in some sort of uh, spiritual um, element to uh, to the world. Um, so hopefully, no matter where you fall on the spectrum, um, you're able to take something away from today's episode and uh, 
You know, I think if nothing else, the uh, the motto, the uh, really the way of life uh, that Jordan, um, or yeah, the motto that he says to himself: "Do the harder thing." Um, if you take nothing else away from the podcast episode, I think that it was worth it for that, and that's something myself that I am going to try to implement in my uh, daily routine and uh, in the things that I do in order to make myself uncomfortable and uh, and stretch my boundaries. So, like I said, at the top of the show, great time at Porkfest. Um, Brian and I, very grateful um, to Matt and Terry Kibbe and the whole um, Free the People team for being so welcoming and uh, really just having an incredible setup there. Uh, with a couple different RV spots, and you know, we got to to use their their camera camera guy and their audio guy, and uh, really just a just an awesome experience, and just great people all around. So, everyone that I met up there at Porkfest was, you know, very uh, very kind and uh, very easy to talk to. You know, uh, and I was surprised. You know, it had been I think two or three years since Brian and I have been back there, and a lot more people. I will say that. Heck of a lot more people. Um, one more note on Porkfest. Uh, we will have that content. I think Brian might have some uh, this Wednesday, possibly. If not, then maybe we'll drop something on Friday. Um, but we'll get it into the bonus feed as well. Um, some of it. I, I think Do Nothing Man will air first as a uh, bonus episode. And uh, yeah, so hopefully next week you get to hear my interview with Jeffrey Tucker, where I talked about um, RFK. And uh, we talked about his Brownstone Institute, which really the uh, driving force behind him starting that was um, the COVID response and everything that came with that. And really, it's a it's a response. It's, it's a, an institute that is, you know, not, not only um, to help doctors who are under threat um, from standing up against this regime, but also to inform and to help people live a, uh, a healthier life. So, Really enjoyed talking with Jeffrey, and I'll have that for you next week. So join the Pride so you can hear this stuff earlier before anyone else. No bonus interview today. Apologize for that. We didn't have time when we cut um, this interview with Jordan, but I'm sure I will have some the next time I do an interview. So that's all I got, guys. I'm going to sleep. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. (laughs) 